So uh, yeah, I I'm a I've been coming here to Santa Cruz Zen Center since 1989, and so um, I started coming about when Catherine started teaching here, and so uh, the people that were here at that time were Dean and Kathy and Patrick, um, and you know I was very involved in the Zendo and came every day and. We helped kind of grow the Zendo from, you know, a pretty small group, and it was a really beautiful and wonderful time. And I really cherished. I mean, I think all of the '90s and into the 2000s, and and then I uh, had a son and got into a big career, and so I kind of would come in and out of the Zen Center over that time. And um, but then I came back. Right as Catherine was dying, it was really kind of auspicious that I arrived and uh, was able to meditate by with you know with people while she was dying in her home, and it was just the most beautiful goodbye and such lucky timing in a sense. So um, so then after she died, I. I felt like I, I wanted to go explore a little bit and I went to Ocean Gate Zen Center and I sat there a lot and was very active in that community for 10 years and it was a wonderful time and a beautiful sweet Sangha and um, was on the board there and very involved in, in running that center and and then it, that chapter sort of came to a close as well and I came back to Santa Cruz Zen Center a few months ago and it's just been the most warm welcome and the, the feeling of the sangha here is so beautiful and it's just like i remember it and the, the spirit of what catherine created with us all those years ago is still very much alive and i feel her presence here and it's just lovely to to be here in this new way with all of you so um so tonight yeah as patrick mentioned i'm going to be talking about a, a buddhist eco chaplaincy program that i'm in and Shakti is also in it too, so it's so great that you're here, and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to fill in where I have, you know, need a little help here and there. So um, wonderful. So <clears throat> you know, we've been in this program for seven months, and sometimes people say, "Well, what is this program?" And sometimes we still we we don't really know exactly. But I, but I just love it, and I want more of it. So it's okay. <laughs> but I'm going to share with you some of the pieces of it as we try to figure out, share some of the experiences uh, over the last seven months of what we've learned and what I've learned. But when I think about Buddhist eco chaplaincy, kind of somebody gave a talk. One of the teachers kind of broke it down in this other way of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So the Buddha, of course, refers to the historical Buddha, but it also refers to Buddha mind and the awakened mind. And the question, the koan of how do we work with the overwhelming issues of environmental injustice, climate change, social injustice, wealth inequity, racial injustice, all of these things that are tied together. Uh, with an awakened mind, with a Buddha mind. Um, that's a lot of what this training is about. You know, there, there's so many facts that touch me in such difficult ways, touch all of us, like the, the fact that the 
carbon impact of the top 1% of the wealthiest people is more than double of the poorest 50%. This means the poorest people are being most impacted and causing it the least. And so it's just, just the inequity of it that already we talk about the future effects of global warming, but already 9 million people a year are dying from climate change, from global warming, from drought, food loss, crop failure, um, uh, the mega storms, the flooding, all of these things have been adding up. It's already happening. You know, um, and the United Nations predicts over the next 30 to 40 years, a million more species will be lost to extinction. So these are like really hard facts we're facing as a in humanity that we haven't really had to face this level of uh, intense environmental and social issues before. It's new territory in the fact. And so how do we meet all of that with equanimity, with the awakened mind? So that's a little bit of what I'll talk about tonight. Um, the second part of the Buddhist eco-chaplaincy is eco-ecology. Ecology is the study of relationships in science, but it's also the study of interbeing, of interconnectedness in Buddhism. So, um, and through the studying these relationships and our, our connection to each other, we can learn how to move from the story of separation, that we're separate beings in the world, to the story of interbeing. Is how Charles Eisenstein talks about it. And interbeing was a Thich Nhat Hanh term, which I love so much. And so Dharma also refers to the teachings of the Buddha, but it also refers to reality just as it is. So ecology is reality just as it is. Ecology is a dynamic system that is so complex and broad, we can't even really understand it with our minds essentially. Um, so, yeah, it's a vast, unknowable mystery. And, and we can meet that through our practice. We can meet that through our practice. There's a way we can do that. Um, Dogen loved the natural world, as we probably many of us know. Dogen was the founder of this tradition of Zen. And um, from the, he understood ecology from the perspective of Dharma, he said, if I take care of the mountains, they will take care of me. And so this is how we can understand our place in the ecosystem as well. If we take care of the world around us, it will also take care of us. It's a, it's a reciprocal system. So the last part of eco, Buddhist eco chaplaincy is chaplaincy. And chaplaincy is basically offering spiritual support to others, to all beings. And that also must always include ourselves. So for me, it's an expression of my bodhisattva vow. It is providing spiritual support to others is actually a part of my Zen practice. And so there is so much uh, in our practice that I'll talk about that is related to the art, art and skill of chaplaincy. Um, but some of those areas include deep listening, being present, doing rituals, and understanding grief. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. 
the one the one definition of Buddhist eco chaplaincy I came up with you might say it is a vow to bring our awakened heart mind to the dharmic reality of suffering related to the environmental crisis using practices to support the spiritual care of our earth sangha buddha dharma and sangha so buddhist ego chaplaincy so when i first kind of got into this program and the thought of um providing spiritual support to other people actually seemed quite overwhelming to me. I thought this is not something I'm going to be able to do. This is going to take me forever to figure out. This is like so complicated. And one of the great teachings uh, from Gil Fransdale, he's uh, one of the teachers of the program, he really emphasized, they all really emphasized, this is really not about what you do or know. It's really about how you be. It's about being. And it's about presencing. Um, and that was really powerful and a huge relief. It's really about spiritual support. It's really just about walking alongside the, peer, the person you're supporting. It's being with them. It's being present. Um, and that's really one of the greatest gifts you can give to anybody. It's just the simple gift of presence. And so just I want to just honor that, because that's what we cultivate here in the Zendo, is presence. And that is the gift we can always be giving to other people who are in need. And um, so, yeah, we we learn how to do, we learn zazen here, and then we learn how to bring our zazen mind out into the world. We do practice. We do walking meditation. We do retreats where we do eating meditation and work meditation, and then we take that out to the rest of the world, and we do email meditation, which is very advanced practice, you know. <laughs> I stay grounded in all of that mess. So, um, so that's through our practice, we're all available to be chaplains in the world. And that's just, it, it sounded so big and scary to me, but in a sense, it's just very human. I wanted to convey that message. So, and then there are, though, even within presence, there are ways we can be with people that are more helpful. And so we refine that. And that's part of our training is how to be with people in certain ways that can be more helpful. And the ultimate goal is really to help people connect with their own inner spiritual resources. How do we kind of reflect back to them their own spiritual power, their own spiritual confidence and connection and come back to that. And through that, that's where the actual healing happens. Chaplains are not therapists. Chaplains are not kind of using, we're not using our power to, to help somebody else. We're using our resources to help somebody else help themselves. It's kind of, how do we, it's almost like a Tai Chi thing. It's like we turn the energy back into them. So um, we do a lot of work around how to discern this. It's a lot about really getting to know yourself. Who are you? What are your biases? What are your hurts, your griefs, and really getting clear about all the things you're holding. So that, is that when you're being with somebody who's going through a hard time, you can put your stuff aside for the moment and just be there for them and not get into your own reactions and not get caught by your reactions to really just, ah, I, I'll just have to sit there for a moment. I'm just going to be 
person I'm, I'm listening to. So this was, I felt, expressed so beautifully by this uh, author, Rachel Nomi Remen, who writes, helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as whole. Fixing and helping create a distance between people, but we cannot serve at a distance. We can only serve that to which we are profoundly connected. So <clears throat> that for me is so powerful, that, that distinct, that discrimination between fixing and helping versus serving and meeting someone as whole and meeting someone as not separate from yourself. Um, for me, that's a very powerful experience and something I'm constantly learning. It's, it sounds simple. It's not simple. It's really hard. It's really, I'm constantly moving. My habit is to fix. My habit is to help. But my practice is to serve. So um, that, that little thing could be a whole Dharma talk. But I just wanted to share with you this, the feeling of chaplaincy and the feeling of serve, serving. Um, yeah, when we can see the whole world, the world is whole and beautiful and perfect. Like Suzuki Roshi, Roshi used to teach, that you are perfect just you as you are. We are perfect just as we are, and we all need a little work. It's that too. You know, it's both. We're holding both in this work. So... So if we can come from a place of seeing and treating the world as complete, as self-healing, self-organizing, and intelligent as it is, then we might be able to create conditions for people that we are serving to step into their own bodhicitta, their own awakening, their own uh, already awakened state, really. They're already in it. So that is, that is part of what we're doing. Um, yeah. So I'm going to switch to another topic that's very important to the program is uh, the eco part. Part of what we practice a lot, and they've given us a lot of uh, work to do around this, is connecting more deeply to, to the natural world, to the more than human world. And um, we've been asked to sit, to be in nature, and remember our place in the ecosystem. Um, it's a little bit like doing zazen in nature, but it's more than that. It's also kind of, re it's a remembering, it's an interacting, it's, it's uh, remembering that we are a participant in the ecosystem, that we're not just an observer, that as Dogen says, the mountains take care of us and the wilderness or the garden and the birds take care of us as we take care of them. So all of these interactions, it's a very, restorative practice, actually, one of the, it's been so um, healing in a sense to just go be in nature and, and listen, what, and try to be guided by the, by the wisdom of the natural world. So a few weeks ago, I was out after those big storms we had, and I was meditating by a creek, and a poem came to me, and so I thought I would share that tonight as part of this talk because it's 
for me, it was a it was a reflection or an expression of creating a more deep, deeply intimate connection with nature. So, called poems called "Lovers Reunited." When the senses are open and the mind quiet of its chatter, you can stand by the edge of a stream and feel the water flowing into one ear through the empty mind cavern and out of the other ear, pouring itself back into the eternal flow of time. In this way, we become the stream and can know water intimately. As I listened to the quiet ripple of flow, I began to understand what I was hearing. I had stumbled across an orgy. After three years of drought, these lovers had been apart for far too long. Mother Earth, with great pleasure, was receiving the sacred wetness of the rain. Of course, this was just the after party, everyone lying around smoking cigarettes. Last week was the real event. They created such a mess with their reckless furniture-destroying lovemaking. It made headlines across the world. Even the president came to gawk. <laughs> Inside my own body, a wild pan awakens, and we join the fun, the ecstasy of water wedding life. Any being, it turns out, can make love with any other being. Life force is pleasure. Awareness is pleasure. Mother Earth is pleasure. So an intimacy with the natural world is part of, part of learning to be with it in a new way. And this is also part of our Zen lineage. Dogen also felt a deep connection with water and earth. He writes, the colors of the mountains and the sound of the mountain streams are the voice and embodiment of Shakyamuni Buddha. There, our, our lineage has countless stories of many different ancestors who went off to live in forests in the huts and that was nature was their teacher nature was how they came to learn the buddha way learn awakening and connect to all of life and so this is um this is a practice i highly recommend is in a garden in the wilderness however it works for you is to go and drop drop in and listen and be, be informed and, and take it in. Another piece of our training, moving to another strand, is around grief. As I, you know, we talked at the beginning, there's so much tragedy around global warming, around the environmental crisis, around habitat loss. There's a huge amount of grief and other difficult emotions happening, so much of it in our society that's really not prepared or equipped to deal with grief or depression or anxiety very well. Um, we, we live in a culture that really wants to pretend nothing's going on, not that sickness, old age, and death are not really part of our, our world. And so there's a lot of work to do around grief in a culture that doesn't want it know it's there and, and work with it. And so we spent a lot of time in this program on grief. And um, 
yeah, it's been incredibly helpful for me to learn more about the landscape of grief and learn there is a little bit of a map. There's things to learn about how to be with people who are grieving and um, using different, different techniques and ways of being present, what's helpful. And mostly it is, again, just deep listening and listening to the needs of the other person, but also creating space for it, making, making them feel seen in their grief, being held in their grief is so important. So, um, and as we get more into grief, you know, we learn in, in our own grief, we learn the in intimacy with the world. That's what I keep learning over and over that my grief connects me to all other beings. All other beings have grief, but it's through this heart connection of grief that we really can connect in a deep way. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so our grief isn't just personal, it becomes more universal in a way. And in that sense, it's easier to hold as a community. And so another beautiful poem on this I'd like to share, Naomi Nye and writes in her poem, uh, Kindness. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you can see the size of the clock. So that, that my grief is your grief, such an important lesson. And how to be with that is such a beautiful gift. So I, through this work and through some grief of my own, have learned to just be with the grief. Like it's another being that lives in my being, it's another being that lives in my body. And I say hi to it uh, pretty much every day and we hang out and uh, it's really helpful to acknowledge this grief being in, in my life. <coughs> so last November, we had a week long in-person training for this program and we did a ritual called the Truth Mandala. And the intention of the ritual was to provide a sacred space for people to bring forth the difficult emotions of anger, fear, despair, and grief. So we created an altar in the middle of the room and there were areas around the altar for each of these specific emotions that you could go to. So, and then the outer, around the edge of the room, there were about 30 people creating sacred space. And then as you chose, you could go into the circle and express your emotions around one of those, express yourself around one of those emotions. And the intent and the hope of the, of the ritual was actually to create an opportunity tr to transform some of those emotions. So to transform anger into a passion for justice, to transform fear to courage, to transform despair to opening to new growth, and from grief to love. So those were the, the possibilities. You know, and I think for the ritual is just planting the seed for that. These transformations can take years, months, years, depending on what we're going through. But it was it was great to have that opportunity. And so I had never grieved in public before like this. 
and I didn't really want to go in, but I did. And I thought because I had a lot of environmental grief, eco grief, I was holding. And so I went in and grief is a tricky thing and it's a wild thing. And I get into the middle and I start crying, but what comes out of my mouth is my brother is killing himself with alcohol. And I just, yeah, it was incredibly powerful for that grief to just make itself known, surprise me. I knew it was something I was dealing with, but it just, it completely transformed my relationship with that particular grief. He had been sick for several months and um, not doing well. And I didn't, somehow I had gotten clothes off from the love and had gotten just scared. And so this broke that open for me in a really powerful way. I'd never really wailed publicly before and I did. And it was very healing. And um, it transformed my grief into love. The ritual was powerful. And so that was, that was a huge gift because three, three weeks later, my brother actually died and um, of liver and kidney failure related to alcohol. So I can say that that ritual was so important because it was important that my heart broke open before that happened. And that ritual was a doorway, was a portal. So, so um, yeah, yeah, nothing else could have prepared me for his death than that ritual, I would say. Yeah. So, grief, grief is a big part of chaplaincy. Holding grief is a big part of chaplaincy. And so is, so is ritual, so is ceremony. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to, Jean did the most beautiful talk last week on form and ceremony. So thank you for setting the stage. The universe just works in these beautiful ways. And so uh, one of the revelations of this training for me, I also thought oh, ceremony is complicated and it's only something priests can do. And, what I'm learning is, no, it's actually something we all can do, and it's actually something we all should do. It's really a powerful tool. And, and so we've, we've kind of come up with this, they, they've taught us this very simple structure for, for ritual, which I'll use, which is when you, an example is when we come into the Zendo, a ritual has a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the beginning, you're just demarcating that we're creating sacred space. We're creating an opportunity to step outside of our normal everyday activity into something sacred and um, where the mystery can happen, where mystery can work on us, where we're open to something different happening for ourselves, to ourselves. So we come in the sendo and we bow, and we bow to our kitchen, and we bow to the room, and that starts the process, that opens the sacred space. Then the priest comes in and bows to the altar and offers incense. And that really does another level of creating the sacred space. That's the beginning of the ritual of zazen. And then zazen, the middle of it is our period of sitting. And then if it's in the morning, we do chanting and bowing. And that's part of the, the middle of the ritual. 
And then at the end, the priest goes and bows again and leaves, and then we all bow and leave, and that's the end of the ritual. And so this very simple structure we can apply in our lives, and it can be really helpful for people. So I just wanted to kind of demystify that and, and, and just make sure that it's, you know it's available to you. And, um, and, and it is really helpful. And I'll, uh, one example, after my brother died, there was a memorial. And it was, there was a big funeral, but later there was just a smaller memorial in Florida. And I went to the beach and got shells and put them in a bowl. And then there was a group of people in the room. I made a little altar with a candle and flowers and a picture of my brother in a bowl. And I just said to people, take a shell and go up to the altar and offer John a wish or a thought or a goodbye. And then you put your shell in the bowl and that's the ritual. And it was so simple, but you know, it was a kind of a big room and people didn't really, a lot of people didn't want to talk, but everybody wanted to put a shell in the bowl and say goodbye to John and just, the little physical activity, I think, is just really powerful, really powerful. So that's how simple the ritual. And several, many people came up to me afterwards and just told me, like, oh, that really, that was really helpful. I needed that. Thank you. So we, this is something we can all do. So, yeah. Um, the last piece I want to talk about in terms of the Buddhist ego chaplaincy is the Sangha part. This work is really hard and we're all doing it. We're all doing it. This work of taking care of the world, of taking care of injustices, of whatever it is we're working on, just taking care of our family is hard. And Sangha is the way we can do it, not alone. Sangha is our connection to each other and out of this connection, this connection to the entire universe. To all beings, you know. So this is our touchstone. And so I just want to honor the Sangha. The human Sangha is beautiful and important. The other Sangha we have is the Sangha of the unseen beings that support us in our practice. Our ancestors, we chant and honor our ancestors in morning service, sometimes all the way back to the Buddha through all the all the ancestors, each generation back 2,500 years. That long line of, of lineage, I think, gives us this great long view of the world and this great kind of rootedness in our practice that helps us be resourced when these things get hard. We know we can rely. We're not doing this alone. Time is, time is not linear, and these, these ancestors are here helping us whenever we want to call upon them. Same with the Bodhisattvas. You know, we have the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. Kuan Yin is the Bodhisattva of compassion. And I come to her every morning and I open my heart and I ask her to hold these, these my grief, my anger, my fear with me, with all beings, hold this with us. And I can't tell you how much that helps. So faith and surrender and um, faith practice is a big part of what I do. Another bodhisattva you may not be as familiar with is Dharanim Dara, 
Bodhisattva, Earth Holder Bodhisattva is what Thich Nhat Hanh is kind of taught about Earth Holder Bodhisattva. And his or her role is to heal the relationship between humans and the natural world, humans and the living earth, how to heal that connection, how to re-enliven that connection. So I, I call upon that Bodhisattva also every day. I love that, just the thought of there's a being and that's their purpose is to heal the earth human connection. So beautiful to me. So, so anyway, um, the other last piece, I, you know, I'm not sure what I'll do with this training. I think I'll be an earth holder bodhisattva in some form. I hope to continue doing earth activist work and supporting earth activists to not get burned out or overwhelmed or sunken in grief. You know, maybe I'll be a chaplain to activists. That may be one thing I do, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's a year away before I'm done. And this is a great program. And um, yeah, and so uh, it is our practice in the world. It's, it's our practice out in the world. Hakuin had this great slogan. He said, meditation in the midst of activity is a billion times superior to meditation in stillness. And that's what this work is. That's what bringing our practice out into the world in the midst of activity. Um, so I encourage you all to take this basic training in Buddhist eco-chaplaincy and go and play with it and, ex and experience it and, and Offer your practice in different ways to the world because the world will receive it. Thank you.